I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged. Michael Patton joining you with Tim and Sam. Hello. Good morning. As usual. Good morning. Um, Sam is just a regular guest now. You just expect Sam here. He used to be special guest. We used to introduce him as such, but uh, he's not really a regular guest. He's a, just a regular. I well, would we're say. all regular guests. We're all co- hosts, co-hosts, yeah. guests, right? Yeah, I guess so. Okay, depends. So, regular guest isn't a contradiction in terms. That's right. I don't do you, know. Do you consider your wife a regular guest at your house? She considers me regular guest. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are um, going to be covering uh, the final, maybe broadcast or two. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. <laughs> We're really hoping this will be the um, bringing the, to conclusion a long series on invitation to Calvinism. But we do. Have something special, right? We do. As of Sam, you don't know about this, so just wait. Yeah, I know it's killing you. Uh, the theology app is now in the iTunes App Store, and what this is is the entire theology program. So we have sixty hours of theological training. More than sixty hours. More than sixty hours. And then we have all of the PowerPoint slides, which are around eighteen hundred slides. And then all of the workbooks, so about 1,200 pages worth of theological workbook as well. All of them, if you were actually to purchase all of this through our ministry, which you can, and we'd love that you would, uh, but if you were to purchase all of it, it would be way over $699 worth of stuff. Individually, if you purchase it. Individually, that's right. And then the app itself, so we're taking $699 worth of stuff, putting it all in one app that is in the App Store right now for $6.99. And so, so 1%, is that what it is? I think so, or yeah, yes, 1%. 1% basically of what it would cost. 99% off if you buy it on. That, that's right. And so you, we you know, you can, just for a lot of downloads or something? Yeah, yeah we are, we are. <laughs> uh, but, you know, what we're really excited about, though, is that we really feel like, you know, a lot of our passion of what we do, why we do what we do is to make theology accessible. And what's so exciting is that it's, it's a very accessible price, and then it's very accessible because uh, anyone who has an iPhone or an iPad right now will be able to, to utilize this app. Well, you can have... So we are coming out with an iPad app, but if you don't want to wait for that, you can do the iPhone app on your iPad as well. Right. And so uh, so that's on the store. If you just search for theology in the app store, it's the first one that comes up. All right. So search for theology on your app store on iTunes, iPad, iPhone, that's any right. other eyes? Nope, nope. Uh, We do have the Android, uh, BlackBerry, all those things will be coming down the pipeline, but uh, it it won't be for a little while. Okay, they always get the shaft, don't they? Yeah, yeah, sorry. But think of it this way. We're going to get all of the kinks ironed out through the iPhone app, and then when it hits the Droid market, it'll be all fine-tuned. All right, well, good. Yeah. Do we we have anything else coming up? I mean, we just talked last night... uh, 
our our church history boot camp. Yeah, and we're really excited about that because, you know, a lot of people, we even had people going to this class where the husband goes to this church history class and the wife is like, good luck with that. That's going to be the most boring thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what, what we find is just as people really discover the roots of their faith and really feel that foundation, it's it's exciting. And it felt like there was a lot of excitement in the room last night of about 60 people who we were teaching through the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon and uh, and it was it was great time. Good, yeah. good. Uh, Sam, you've had a little bit of experience with church history, uh, just a bit. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, he's from that time. <laughs> I'm that old. <laughs> I mean, I was that an eyewitness to Nicaea. What can I say? <laughs> okay, guys. Well, uh, speaking of some history, um, speaking of doctrine, speaking of uh, uh, sometimes something that uh, people may not want to engage in, a controversial issue in theology. We are continuing our study here, or our invitation to Calvinism, and I think we've gotten to the point in our study where we've covered all of the basic issues of Calvinism in the tulip that we have been using, Yeah. Uh, but we wanted to take a couple of broadcast, broadcast or two, and talk about misconceptions, where people go wrong, how the listener, guys, here's, here's what I want to think of, the, the listeners listen to this, what are the things you know that they're thinking due to experience and exposure? What are the things, the hurdles that we need to help them to overcome, the misconceptions that they are bringing to the table that need to be unraveled? Not saying that this unraveling will automatically make you accept the invitation that we are making to Calvinism, but we don't want any, any misconceptions out there. Let's talk about some of those. I know we've got a lot. There, there's, there's a long list of them. What are some of them that might get brought up? What are the what is the biggest misconception, Sam, that you have seen with regards to people's misunderstanding of Calvinism? Oh my, the biggest. I don't know if I could pick one. I think they're all probably co-equal in terms of their um, uh, capacity to to confuse people. Certainly. People would say that if what we've been arguing is true, that uh, it, re- it makes God unfair and arbitrary, um, and therefore, can he really be trusted? I think also people wonder, how does prayer factor into Calvinism? Um, should I continue to pray for my unsaved children? Um, should I continue to pray for those that uh, I've been sharing the faith with? Um, what value does it have? Should I even be sharing the faith? What's the point of witnessing for Christ? Yeah, I didn't say give us ten of them. Well, I'm, I mean, hey, they're, they're he's, all. He's on a roll. I what, am on what, a roll here. Doing, I know, but and, I don't. I want to stop on the prayer one for and a little. We'll get to it, and then I think a lot of people um, uh, think that the, the 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 doctrines of grace as we've articulated them in effect, nullifies the value of their daily choices. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if we are, in fact, in bondage to our fallen nature and God has foreordained eternal life for some hell-deserving sinners but not all, doesn't that undermine the integrity of our decision-making? Uh, and, and they say experientially it feels as if I'm making valid decisions that flow out of my the spontaneity of my so-called free will, but... They think that uh, this is inconsistent with uh, the doctrines of Calvinism that we've articulated. Um, so those are just a handful, and I don't know how you would rank them. They're all 
by the way, if you're hearing that, folks, uh, Tim's cell phone is ringing, and he's trying to dig into his pocket to turn it off. Um, his, his, it, his, it is his my phone. It is my wife, though, and she does not consider me a guest, so that's why she feels so much freedom to call me even when we're in the studio. Like Michael this. immediately pulled his out of his pocket to turn it off. Mine is tucked away in my briefcase. Well, I was I was <laughs> downloading the new um, the new i the, 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 yeah, the new app. theology app. Yeah. And then were you calling me to tell me about it or something? <laughs> <laughs> I had somebody last night after class come up to me, and I don't know why this got brought up. It wasn't necessarily a subject of. Uh, church history or Chalcedon or Nicaea, but the first person, the first question they asked after all this church history stuff we've been going through is, if God is in such control, and if God is sovereign to the degree that only those who are elect will come to him, why pray? Okay, mm-hmm. now I know that doesn't have anything to do with the church history, but it was a question. It was just on. Yeah. It was just a question that 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 spilled out because it's such a a a, a, um, a common question whenever it comes to this. Yeah. And you know what? What are the options here? I mean, she gave the example. I want to pray for somebody that uh, that I want to come to know the Lord. Do I do that or should I not? Mm-hmm. And I, I like to think about the options here and say, okay. The first thing is kind of this implicit rejection of Calvinism. That's the way she was approaching it. It seemed with me, you know, hey, if what you're right, what you're saying is right uh, about Calvinism. Again, I didn't talk about it, but she knew I was a Calvinist. If what you're saying is right about Calvinism, then there's no need for me to pray for them. Yeah. Right. But before I took her there, what I said to her is I said, let's just act as if for a moment that I don't believe in Calvinism. And we both believe that that. It is up to us. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, everything is in our lap. What happens whenever you don't pray for that person? Yeah. I mean, think of it that way. Yeah. If Calvinism, if what we're saying is not true, if you don't pray for that person, then that person may not get saved. So, so basically it's up to you to twist the arm of God so that he will move in this person's heart for them to be saved. Exactly. And and so it's almost like if you have this view, it's kind of like, well, what are you saying about God then if you're if you say, well, I'm not going to pray because I feel like God is in control, then saying, well, okay, now if you would have prayed then, you're thinking then God is not in control. Mm-hmm. So it seems like just we have our God is in control. We have a God who is sovereign and we pray. And Jesus prays, and his disciples see him pray and say, teach us how to pray. And it's not like Jesus uh, needed to pray or Jesus was twisting the arm of God to pray, but it was just, that's what we saw happen. You have not because you ask not. Yes. Your friend is not saved because you have yet to ask. And And it might start then teaching us, well, why do we pray? Are our prayers well, twisting the, the arm heart of, of the God? Matter, isn't it? Yeah, is is it twisting the arm of God, or maybe it's more about us and more of us submitting ourselves to the will of God? And uh, but He's desiring for us to, you know, we know that the Egyptians, that the cries of the Egyptians were heard by God as well. And so, uh, you know, I, I think taking a holistic view, we never downgrade God's sovereignty in our prayers. I think we just upgrade it, and that's why we say there's no one else to come. To, but but to come to you. Let me uh, let me even be more provocative, if I may. 
and make a uh, suggestion. Let people think about it and we can explore it. I would want to argue that, and again, I I hope our Arminian listeners don't take too much offense at this because I want to explain myself. I would argue that, in fact, only people who embrace Calvinism can actually pray for God to save the lost. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I'm not saying that those who are non-Calvinists don't pray for God to save the lost. But I think, number one, they're inconsistent in doing so, and they haven't fully thought about what they're actually asking God to do. So let's stop for a moment and ask ourselves the question. When we are praying for unsaved friends or family members, what precisely are we asking God to do? I would suggest that if you embrace an Arminian view of human nature, if you do not believe um, in the bondage of the will, if you think that salvation is ultimately suspended or contingent upon this free act of will on the part of the individual, you cannot ask God actually to save that individual. All that you can ask him to do is, Lord, would you create circumstances in which this person might be more inclined to come to faith? Or would you uh, bring people into their life or a book across their path that they might have opportunity that they otherwise wouldn't have had? But what the Arminian cannot ask God to do is actually to touch this person's mind and effectually and thoroughly convert them, regenerate their hearts, and bring them to faith in Jesus because you're asking God to invade, as it were, or override or somehow uh, move upon their will in an an effective or effectual way. And the Arminian would have to say, no, that would violate their free will. There's only, in other words, there's a, a point beyond which God cannot go in his work in the human heart, according to Arminian theology. There's a point beyond which God, uh, it's basically it's, it's no God's land. I'm going to say no man's land. Mm-hmm. God can't go there because, according to the Arminian, it would violate the integrity of the freedom of the will. Mm-hmm. As a Calvinist, I believe that God goes all the way. Yeah. When I pray for God to save someone, I say, Lord, actually regenerate them. Change their nature overcome their resistance, shine the light of, uh, of, of the Holy Spirit into the darkness of their soul, dispel the darkness, um, awaken them thoroughly to, to their lost condition, and bring them to faith in Jesus. So there's not a point beyond which God cannot go. And you pray that, but then you go and speak to Absolutely. them. Absolutely. So you're not just praying that in your closet and then letting God take care of the rest. That's right. It, going in that, then you go. As, as yeah. Spurgeon would say, you pray knowing it depends fully on God, but then you act as if it depends fully yeah. on you. And Lord, use my words by the power of your Spirit, because we read in First Peter at the end of chapter 2, um, that, or is it the end of chapter 1, I should say, that it is through the preached word that regeneration, the new birth, happens. So, Lord, use my proclamation of the word, use my testimony, use my prayers, and actually, effectually give them faith, open their eyes, overcome the resistance of their will. That's something that an Arminian might pray, but if they do so, it's inconsistent with their theological system. Mm -hmm. Their their system won't allow them to do it, even though... 
I'm glad they're inconsistent and they pray it anyway. Yeah. But if they'll stop and think for a moment, if you really embrace the ultimacy of the human will in the salvific in this saving process, salvific process, you can't ask God to override their resistance and actually subdue their re- their rebellion and bring them to faith in Jesus. Hmm. Well, you know, and if you believe in such a way that God takes this type of hands-off approach, but he will manipulate the outer circumstances in order to make the gospel more acceptable or or more attractive because of an influence or a friend that you see that uh, has the gospel, I mean... Aren't aren't we really saying there is a certain amount of election here because God determines, we all believe this, Acts chapter 17, God determines the time and the places and the families Mm -hmm. and our habitation and the boundaries of where we live and when we live. What if those people who are born in societies that have nobody to pray for them and never have, you know, the gospel is just simply not present in any sense. You see all of the sudden that, their election, while not as definite, is still a type of election because God could have foreseen ahead in time and said, well, I'm going to put this group of people right here and no, nobody's ever going to pray for them because no, nobody's ever going to know about them. No, they're never going to have any influences. But, you know, I just, I just kind of hope that it, it works. But it's a lot better off for, for Sue there in America who's who's very committed to me and her, her her friends and relatives and loved ones, they're all going to be saved because of her influence. I mean, aren't we talking about a certain level of election either way here with Arminian view you have to take? Yes. You're, you're affirming the inescapable empirical reality of God's sovereignty in assigning all of humanity to certain, as Paul says in Acts, he set the boundaries of their habitation uh, the times of their existence, the circumstances in which they find themselves. And even just go back to the, your initial comment there, Michael. You said, uh, you know, we pray that uh, God would manipulate circumstances so that the gospel would appear, uh, that, the gospel, that the gospel would appear appealing to them or that there would be a measure of influence. And I want to come back and press the point again. How acceptable, to what degree of influence does God work? I would want to ask the Arminian that question. Are you asking God to make it irresistibly effectual and acceptable and influential? And the answer is no, you can't, because that would override the uh, sovereignty of the human will in the, in the decision-making process. So there's, again, you cannot, you're basically saying, Lord, I want you to manipulate the circumstances and um, use all factors of life and individuals and events to make the gospel appealing. But, Lord, I want you to do it in an ineffectual way Hmm. because you can't pray, God, make it effectual because that would yield to the Calvinistic view that God ultimately has to overcome human resistance to bring them to faith. So, in effect, you're saying, God, here's how far you can go. And I can't ask you to go any farther. So, Lord, do everything short of actually saving their soul, hmm. of actually bringing them to faith in Jesus. And, again, I don't think most Arminians have ever really thought about what the implications are of their view of the ultimate sovereignty of the human will uh, in conversion. Because if, the, if you affirm that, 
then there's there are massive limitations on what you can actually ask God to do in bringing people to faith in Jesus. And again, I mean, in the end, um, I, I do think that we're looking at the Bible. We're looking for God's revelation. We're not trying to figure out what's the most pal- palatable. We're trying to figure out what is the truth. And I think that that, I mean, uh, truly, as we've sat here and talked, I thought, you know, this really turns around and becomes a bigger problem, biblically speaking, practically speaking, uh, rationally speaking, for the Arminian than for the Calvinist, uh, this idea of prayer, and especially prayer for loved ones. Now, when we're talking about prayer for smaller things, um, you know, God, please help me to get this job. God, uh, please help me to uh, find this person to marry. Please help me to be able to have a child. Uh, these types of things. What degree does, or is there a degree, whenever we're talking about Calvinism, that God's sovereignty is in control of every single detail? And what degree do our prayers actually change things? Cause do, we, do we believe that prayer changes things? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Jesus does too. I mean, the parable of the, the lady that, that just kept berating the person and, and kept, wouldn't let it go and just kept hammering. And then finally the person relents. And, um, and, you know, I, I think that's a good illustration. Um, and in it, that parable, God, the, the illustration is yeah. how much more is God going to take care of those whom he loves where this lady was going to judge? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I would say yes, you know, and, and I think like yes there's probably going to be some some uh, person argue that calvinists are non-actors they don't act they just sit around and you know god please bring me a job i'm not going to go look for one just please bring me one or something so i think that uh, an, well, an Armenian might think for a job if God's in control to the degree that He's going to bring you know, about His will. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a, a Calvinist must become a fatalist in the sense that we just sit back and whatever happens happens, and we don't really do anything because God's so in control. And and that's I think just a straw man. Uh, that uh, that is not what we're saying here. What we're well, saying well, that, is that, that very do, objection. What you're saying right yeah. there, Calvinism is fatalism, is a huge objection that I come across all the time. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, what we would say is that doesn't mean that you downgrade the sovereignty of God in order to try and make this less fatalistic. Instead, you say, no, God is fully sovereign, and I am fully one who is to act, to act out and to live out and to to watch my faith and my doctrine closely. In other words, what you just expressed, Tim, in that last two sentences— is maybe the most important principle. We talked about this earlier. No, in mine was better earlier. No, I mean, man, I'm I'm basking in this. <laughs> I'm just so used to the reprove and to the correction from Sam. No, so. no, no, no. Because what you just articulated is what we call compatibilism. Mm-hmm. You just said, yes, we believe in the absolute, meticulous, overriding sovereignty of God, and I also believe that I am responsible, that my choices matter, and that... Things will be different if I act in a certain way or pray in a certain manner. Mm-hmm. And when when people hear that, those two sides of that statement, they say contradiction, mutually exclusive, they cancel each other out. They say those are incompatible. And the whole foundation of everything we've been talking about is that the Bible, we believe, teaches that they are compatible. Now, if, if people listening are saying, but my mind, my human reason says those two things don't work. They're mutually inconsistent with each other. I would simply say, very humbly, uh, 
that you are allowing human reason to dictate your convictions rather than scripture. You're going to have all of us have to come down to, to, to the, the bottom line. Are we going to allow the Bible and its assertions to govern our theological conclusions, or are we going to be driven by what my reason or my sense of right and wrong tells me ought to be true? So, for example, um, if the word if the Bible says uh, that God works all things according to the counsel of His will, in Ephesians one eleven. And I'm going to take that and I'm going to read that in light of James 4, which says, you have not because you ask not. So meaning that if I had asked, I would have had. And if I don't ask, I don't have. And am I going to say, well, human logic tells me those two texts are mutually exclusive. They they don't mesh. They just don't work. Uh, You're going to be an incompatibilist. You're going to say they're incompatible with each other. But the Bible says they are compatible. Even though my mind can't fathom that, it's it's the same principle in Acts 2 and Acts 4, especially Acts 4, where Herod and Pontius Pilate and the leaders of Rome and Israel are indicted by God for having committed the most heinous, wicked act in human history. They crucified the most righteous, the only righteous man who ever lived, Jesus. And yet Peter says they were gathered to do whatever your hand predestined to occur. Okay, so the incompatibilist who's driven solely by human logic says, if God predestined it to occur, he can't hold them morally accountable for their decision to crucify Jesus. Peter says, oh, yes, he can. Peter was a compatibilist. Peter says, God predestined it to occur, and God's going to hold them accountable for doing what he predestined. Yeah. Now, it's that principle is so pervasive throughout Scripture. There are so many examples of it. And it, it applies directly to this issue of prayer. My mind may tell me, don't intercede for a lost friend. Don't pray for God to save them because they may not be elect, and therefore your prayers will be useless. The Bible tells me, as we, for example, we read where, where Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer for my kinsmen according to the flesh is that they would come to know God, that they would be converted and saved. So there is, according to the biblical point of view, perfect compatibility that transcends our capacity to understand between God's ultimate sovereign decision-making and his election on the one hand and the effectual, uh, essential, absolutely necessary intercession by people like us for the lost on the other. They are compatible, even though... Our minds may scream out and say, "No, these things cancel each other out." And what, what I would what I would add to that is, we see this in other areas of Scripture too. And what we're saying is, we don't jettison reason, we don't jettison thinking about things, we don't say stop thinking and just believe. That's the last thing we do in the ministry that we're about. But what we say is that Scripture is in authority over our reason. And when we approach things like the Trinity and communicate to people that that there is only one God, has only been one God who exists in three persons, yet we do not uh, worship three gods, uh, but we uh, then uh, then we take that then to uh, the hypostatic union that God became a man. Those seem to be 
impossible, uh, mutual exclusive things. We have man over here and God over here. There's no way that those two can combine, but we say that they do in the person of Christ. And we see great mysteries in the person of Christ, great mysteries in the Trinity, even mysteries in the Word of God being God's authoritative Word. There's mysteries that surround everything that I think lead us to awe and to worship. And we, we could look at just everyday life, electricity and other things that we understand to a certain point, but then there are points that we don't understand. And even scientists would say, we don't understand this. There's a mystery. So in our common experience, we don't, we shouldn't look to prayer and say, this is different than everything else, like the Trinity and the hypostatic union. I mean, I think uh, we live in a world that's filled with mystery, yet we still live in it and act accordingly. Exactly, because if people if people were to respond to what we just said and say, well, now explain to me how they are compatible, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody in the history of the church who ever has. Uh, I know that Scripture tells me they are, and I'm going to yield to the authority of God's Word in that regard. And then again, another thing we, we need to, since we're talking about prayer, that we need to include here is the simple truth that God never ordains ends apart from the means by which they are attained. So, you know, if I believe, as I do, that all my days were ordained for me before as yet there was one of them, Psalm 139, that doesn't mean that I stop eating and breathing, as if somehow I'm going to live out my fullness of days independently of or irrespective of whether I choose to inhale, exhale, and eat and drink. I believe that the means by which my life is perpetuated is something under my control that you know, I don't walk out in the middle of traffic. I, I, I don't take, I don't jump out of airplanes without a parachute. I don't jump out of airplanes at all. But <laughs> I, I, there are means by which the ordained ends and goals of God are achieved. And the ordained means by which God has determined to bring his people into the kingdom through faith in Jesus is in response to our intercessory prayers on their behalf and our evangelistic outreach to them. And that's what Thomas Aquinas said. I mean, he said, God has not only chosen the ends, but he's also chosen the means to get us there. And I think that's a wonderful way to state it, because that is not fatalism. No. I mean, one of the things, I know we're out of time here, but one of the things that you got to leave here with, folks, is number one, Calvinism is not presenting a Christian form of fatalism. Fatalism, by definition, has everything working in a meaningless cause and effect relationship that goes back to eternity past that has no rhyme or method or purpose. That is the last thing we'd want people to leave here with is to think, well, we kind of believe in fatalism. Not at all. We believe that God is in control, which is the furthest thing from fatalism. And God is bringing about his will through us, through our actions, through our prayers. And outside of those things, um, he, 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 doesn't, he hasn't chosen any other means. Yeah. In, in fact, if I could just throw this in, uh, the very existence of this broadcast is a proof that we don't believe in fatalism. Because if we did, we would just simply say, look, whether or not the people listening ever embrace Calvinism or not is ultimately up to the sovereignty of God. So any attempt on our part to persuade people from Scripture or to encourage them to think a certain way is unnecessary. Either it's ordained or it's not. So let's just go drink coffee and watch TV. The fact that we consider it important that we open the Word of God and that we dialogue about these matters and that we pray that people would come to understand them demonstrates our rejection of fatalism. That's right. 
one of the things last night when we were talking through the Council of Nicaea that uh, came, became clear to me more than had at any time previous was the reasoning behind Arius who denied the co-eternality of Christ, denied him the same substantial deity as the Father, basically said that he was a created God. He was God, but a created God. But the primary motive, it seemed, as the council discussed, and you see the people talking about uh, whether or not Arius is right, was that Arius elevated human reasoning above God's revelation. Yeah. And in the end, he committed that error, I think, to, to the first and, and foreshadowing the degree to which we can become doctrinally unsound by saying, it doesn't make sense, give me option two. You know, option one that the Bible is teaching doesn't seem to make sense. I can't understand or comprehend it. Give it to me in some other form that is better than that. And that's what we're talking about here with compatibilism. And I think that's an important thing to recognize, compatibilism. It, It is that we are being used necessarily through God's will to accomplish God's purpose. And what we say, do, think, act, believe, all matters. That's right. Matters Um, eternally. (laughs) Eternally. Yes. So uh, I I guess uh, hopefully we've covered uh, some of you guys' thoughts and and objections maybe you're having to Calvinism or whatabouts. We'll continue to try to get on a couple of more next broadcasts. So thanks, guys, for being here. And those of you listening, thanks for the continual support. Remember, this is a listener-supported broadcast. Is that the way you put it? Uh, probably not, but it works. Okay. We are 501c3. We depend upon your gifts and donations. And so you can go to our website at credohouse.org and uh, donate to our ministry, and we'd much appreciate it. That's right. God bless y'all. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.